Before I start, I wanted to give you a bit of a warning that this episode does discuss suicide and mental health. So if you don't feel that you can listen to it right now, that's totally fine. Just skip this one and tune back in next week. Welcome to When Did You Know? I'm Andy and this week I'm joined by Daniel Cool. Dan is an incredible advocate and writes about mental health on the internet and is about to release his first book. He's 27 and lives in Liverpool with his dog and we had such a wonderful chat that it took a fair amount of editing to fit it under one hour. Daniel was really honest about his experiences of coming out, the suicide of his first boyfriend and why he speaks so passionately about mental health. This is a special episode and it's a privilege to share it with you. So welcome, Dan, and your lovely dog. Oh, hello, Benson. He's asleep next to me, actually, at the minute. Oh, is he going to behave, or am I going to have to edit his box? Well, the reason I was a little bit, like, later than planned to be on the call, because I had to walk him, just so I knew that he would sleep through this whole thing. So he's asleep on my bed at the minute. Okay. So I might have to start shouting his name towards the end of the podcast. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, if I disappear for, like, a couple of minutes, it's because I'm telling my child off, that's all. (laughs) Um, so each episode, I ask the same three questions to begin with, and we'll take it from there. First off, how do you identify? Uh, I identify as a gay man. Um, I went through a phase. I know. I know there is like a lot of different ways that people identify, um, and I went through the phase probably up until about six, seven years ago of identifying as like bisexual. Um, but it was only yeah in the last couple of years that I was very much like no, I am. 100% a homosexual male. Awesome, thank you. Um, and what age did you come out? I came out to my parents when I was 14. I was quite young, actually. Um, but everyone else, I kind of came out over the next couple of years. My parents were the first, kind of, the two people I wanted to tell first. Um, so, yeah, that was when I was 14. But then by the time I was kind of 18, everyone... It wasn't so much that I was coming out. It was more that that's how I was introducing myself. Um, so, yeah, it was like a four-year process. And finally, the point of the podcast, when did you know? Oh, gosh. I Do you know what? This is one of my favourite questions to be asked because, obviously, there's the whole stereotypical, um, like, I think people think you just wake up one Tuesday afternoon and you think, well, this is it. This is who I am now. Um But I more kind of say it's not that it's not when I knew it was more when I realized that kind of that's what my life had been. So when I was a child, I would play with like my friends Barbies rather than my own action then. And I was very into Spice Girls and I watched Spice World, the movie on repeat every week. And um, at the time, I didn't realize it. But when I was like watching TV and stuff, I was focusing on the men and I was like kind of um, questioning that kind of area. But it probably wasn't until I was like in high school when I started mixing with other people in a bigger circle that I realised that all of those things were because I was gay um, or because I was attracted to men. It wasn't that kind of I woke up on that Monday morning and was like, this is it. It was more I woke up on the Monday morning and realised that my whole life had been kind of building up to admit that to myself and to kind of identify that with myself. And I feel like if we hadn't have been, and I'm probably going to go off on a bit of a like ranty tangent, but I feel like if we hadn't had been kind of a society of people that heterosexuality is the norm, I probably would never have had to have that realisation. It kind of would have just been, oh, well, this is who I am, kind of carry on with life. It's not it's not this huge moment of like an awakening or anything. Um, so I blame society a lot for that one. 
And so like you started to realise who you were when you were in high school. Would that would that have been quite close to when you came out to your parents if you were 14? Yeah, so um I was in year eight when I met my who who then went on to be my boyfriend. Um and it was that kind of that relationship dynamic, that meeting that kind of was like the cement for me. This is it. This is who I'm attracted to. Um, and I think every kind of young gay or bi or trans kind of anyone that's questioning their sexuality, I think they go through that period of kind of a couple of months to a couple of years where they're battling it in their own head. And that's where that battle started for me was kind of this is who I feel like I am, but this is who I feel like I should be. Um, so kind of which one is it? So it was kind of, yeah, year eight is when I met him and we went through that kind of questioning. And then, yeah, I was 14 when I kind of slapped my mum and dad down very dramatically, may I add, <laughs> which is probably no surprise to anyone that knows me, but it was a very dramatic showdown um, when I was 14, yeah. Um, yeah. And so how was that? How was it telling your parents? Oh gosh, well, <laughs> I I always struggled with my dad more because my dad was the kind of macho rugby player. He was like semi-professional. He went out every weekend, played rugby, got drunk with the lads, came home. Um, and that was kind of our weekends, whereas my mum was a social worker. So my mum got it. My mum kind of, there was never a fear with my mum because she had seen so many different children and so many different stories and experiences that kind of anything that I tell my mum is not a shock to my mum at this point because she's seen it all. Um, but I packed a suitcase just in case and I went on my phone, texted my friend and said, listen, I'm about to do this. Um, can I stay at your house because it's going to go wrong? And they'd said yes. They had set a time to pick me up and all this kind of thing. And um, I went downstairs with my suitcase and I'd got myself that worked up that we ended up having an argument about something completely different. And it was something completely stupid. And just halfway through the argument, I kind of was like, well, I'm only angry because I think I am. And then just blurted it all out. And then that's where it was like, oh, my mum was kind of like, I thought you had something really bad to tell us. Like you were building this up and I thought it was going to be something very dramatic, something very horrible, but it kind of is what it is. That's fine. And my dad was the one that took a few days to get his head around it and understand it. But then on the flip side, since my dad is probably more protective of me than he is of my brothers and things like that. And he likes to vet anyone that I bring into the house and he likes to like, double make sure that no one's kind of crossing me and making me like question myself or anything like that so it's kind of it's done a full kind of 180 and the fact that my mum just lets me get on with it now and my dad's the protective like the protective one that comes in all the time and um, but yeah that first kind of three months were quite rough because my dad being that macho and like my dad grew up in gangs my dad was quite like a hard knock on the streets and they'd break into shops and like all this kind of stuff he doesn't do that now obviously he is a very grown mature man um, but growing up my dad grew up in that very like hyper masculine environment of it being all about men finding women beating each other up like drinking in the pub playing rugby so for him to accept it and for him to understand it has been this whole thing so it was 13 years ago and only now has he started referring to so before now, he would refer to anyone that I brought home as my friend. But now he's starting to be like, oh, this is your boyfriend. When are you next seeing your boyfriend? Um, and that's taken 13 years, but like it's a small win that I'm still like, yes, I will take that. So yeah, it's been a journey. 
been a very big journey, actually. And did your boyfriend at the time come out at the same time? Were you kind of doing it together? Oh, God, no, no. He was like, oh, gosh, he was two years older than me in school. Um, he'd already kind of done that, but he was he was this weird mix of like Will Meller in Two Pints of Lager, where he was this like lads lad who drank every weekend on the park and like dabbled with things he shouldn't dabble with. So he was like well ahead of me and it was his confidence of anything that kind of, I think if it was me on my own journey and doing my own things, I probably wouldn't have come out when I did. But I think his confidence, and it's not a negative thing, but I think his confidence and his influence kind of led me to do it a lot sooner. Um, but in a nice way, it wasn't in like a, he was forced to me to come out way. It was a, well, if he can do that and he can live his true life the way that he's doing it, then I need to be one step closer to doing that for myself. So yeah, he was quite, he was quite an inspiration in that sense. And going back to when you were a lot younger and playing with Barbies and really <laughs> loving the Spice Girls, did you ever sense a reaction from people or did you ever feel different because you were choosing to play with Barbies instead of acting? Yeah, so I was only talking about this yesterday, actually, because our next, so I live back at home with my mum and dad. I was meant to move to London, but then the coronavirus pandemic hit. So I'm back home in my childhood bedroom and it's quite weird. Um, but our next door neighbours, they have a son and a daughter who are around my age. And I would always play with the daughter and we would always play with Barbies. Um, we would watch the Spice Girls together and all that kind of thing. And it was her brother and his friends who would find it quite odd growing up and they would laugh at us or they would steal the Barbies or they would call me a girl and things like that. And it was, that's probably like the first, yeah, probably the first instances of having someone challenge you for who you are. But as a child, you kind of don't think anything of it on that kind of deeper level. But I remember more being very defiant about it, that I was kind of like, no, I want to play with the Barbies and I want to watch Sporty Spice. And um, because as a side note, Sporty Spice is from around here. So we've always championed Sporty Spice. Um, and yeah, we kind of, we, that, that was the life that I wanted. And I've always been quite stubborn in that sense. I was kind of like, well, no, this is what I'm doing. But then it was only in kind of, the later years of primary school when the sports days would come around and the boys would all play football on the field in summer and stuff that I started questioning whether that's what I should be doing and that's where I kind of hit that wall of people laughing at me because I wanted to play like skipping ropes with the girls or I wanted to kind of um, play with the girls like or kind of the quieter boys and stuff and because I wasn't part of that masculine football team and I think that's where my dad's influence of the masculine rugby came in that I started really fighting that and I started really questioning oh, what's going on here why why am I getting laughed at by people and why is my own dad telling me like come on you need to play rugby let's go play football on a Saturday because I couldn't think of anything worse than playing football on a Saturday like it but that's what my dad wanted me to do and it was that challenge it was that fight that that was probably the first time that I really struggled with people in a society telling me who I should be kind of stereotypically versus who I felt like I really was. And when you, when you came out, did any of that, that pressure from your dad specifically, because you mentioned him, go away? Or had it already started to kind of go at that point? Was he still trying to mould you into what he saw as a boy or a man? I think, ugh, I think it's quite hard because, so 
my mum and dad aren't my mum and dad they are I was adopted by them and um, they are my auntie and my uncle but he came with three children from a previous relationship and two of them were boys who kind of the apples of his eyes like they played football with him they played rugby with him they um they worked with him whenever he could kind of bring them into work and stuff and he had that very lad like dad and lad relationship with both of them but because because he didn't have full custody so they stayed with their mum in the week and they were a lot older than me so they moved away I think what happened more than anything was my dad tried to put me in their shoes and he tried to be like well you know your brothers play football your, your brothers are playing rugby why aren't you doing it let's go and he really did try and coax me but he never did force me he never did kind of put the football in front of my feet and say kick it but he really would push on a Saturday morning to be like come on let's go um but then I think it was in high school when I started really getting into <laughs> the typical uh, like drama, musical theatre, like dance and stuff like that. And it was then that I think he was kind of like, okay, he doesn't want to play football. He wants to kind of do this instead. And that was never about sexuality, but I think that was my dad realising that I would never be my brothers. I would never be that hyper-masculine kind of man that wanted to play rugby. I would rather be doing ballet for 12 hours on a Saturday, like which my mum was thrilled about, but <laughs> my dad not so much. <laughs> was there ever any tension between like, your mum and dad over that? Um, because I, um, the main reason I ask is I, when I was younger, I mean, you wouldn't know it from now because I have no rhythm, but I, <laughs> I went to dance classes like a lot of young gay boys do. And um, there was, my dad was, you know, wonderful, very supportive. But um, when I came out, my mum, was convinced that my dad would be mad and blame her because she encouraged me to go to dancing. That wasn't the case at all, but I kind of, I'm curious as to whether there was any tension between your parents over that or not, that you're aware of anyway. Um, there was a little bit, but it was because, um, obviously they both came from completely different backgrounds. My mum being a social worker and being very open and understanding of different children my dad being very black and white, boys are boys, girls are girls. And it was in high school when, so my high school specialised in performing arts, which meant that we could do our GCSE in it in year nine. And it freed up kind of one of those option slots to do another GCSE for year 10 and 11. And obviously I jumped at the chance to do that and I was all over it. And that was around the time that my, I think my dad was starting to realise, okay, he doesn't want to play football anymore. He wants to kind of tap dance on stage for three hours, that's fine. Um, but me and my group, so we were in groups of six, and me and my group were the only group in the Northwest that year to come out with 100% in that GCSE. Um, and that's when I think my dad stopped the tension and was like, okay, actually, it's because he's good at it. It's because, like, this is something that he's actually really qualified to do and he can go on and do things. And the thing that always gets me, though, is that he replaced that kind of, that tension of, why aren't you playing football? Why are you doing dance? He almost replaced that with kind of, well, if this is what you want to do, how are you going to find a job in it? Finding a job in performing is hard and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like he replaced one worry with another worry. But I think that's just my dad as a person is that he just worries a lot about us. Um, and he does always kind of, my brothers were safe. Like one of them worked in a motorbike shop and now kind of lives in Sweden or Switzerland, one of them. Um, fixing motorbikes and stuff so he's got this really good career and then another one he's a roofer but he owns his own business so my dad's always been like okay these two are safe but 
because of the industry that I work in now, because of the industry I trained and studied in, he's always been a bit like, oh, are you going to be able to afford the rent this month? Are you going to be able to like, you know, how are you going to get a mortgage on a freelance kind of contract and et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's more the age that comes into it because I don't think that generation understand how our generation work in that sense. Um, I think you'd have a, like an absolute heart attack if you realised that people were paying mortgages on OnlyFans and stuff like that. I think he would really, really struggle with that concept. Um, but I just, yeah, I think that's more generational than it is anything. Yeah, I think I'd agree. So you've touched on a bit about um, some of the what you do in your industry now. Yes. Focusing more on kind of the mental health side of things. So um, I know some of what of why you write, what you do, but I guess for people who aren't, aren't aware, did you want to talk about why you do what you do, why you write so openly about mental health? Do you know what? I think it's actually, I think it's quite fitting to this conversation about why we do it, um, because the kind of, so when I was younger, the boyfriend that I mentioned that kind of I came out for and we had this life together, when I was 17, he took his own life. Um, and it was in his notes and his kind of diaries that no one had found until months after. And it was quite this kind of revelation. Um, it was because he struggled to accept who he was. And it was that he felt like he couldn't find a place to fit into this world because although we're only talking kind of 10 years ago, the waves and the movement of kind of sexuality and acceptance now it's so different to what it was 10 years ago. And it sounds like it's such a short time. So you think, how, how can so much change? But in those 10 years, we've been allowed to get married. We've, you know, been decriminalized in so many different countries. We now see ourselves on mainstream media and TV, but that wasn't there 10 years ago. There was kind of one scene probably where two people in Coronation Street of the same sex would kiss, but it would cause this six month uproar and ratings would drop and it would get debated in parliament and stuff, I remember. So yeah he really struggled to be like and the the kind of the one note that always sticks with me is the one where he spoke about how he can't see himself reflected in society so he could never see kind of an 18 year old boy who is a homosexual who kind of doesn't know what he wants to do with his life but kind of just wants to be happy he couldn't see that anywhere he couldn't see that in in tv or in a film or in a celebrity so he really struggled with it um, and when he took his own life, it's coming up to 10 years actually this year, um, he kind of left this hole in all of us because no one expected it. It was not something that we saw come in. Um, but there was no, again, 10 years ago, there was no help for mental health. Mental health was something that you manned up about. It was something that you kind of just got on with and lived with. There was never a forum to talk about it. And I could recognise very quickly that if I didn't find that way to talk about it, I would end up doing the same because I would stop seeing myself reflected in society. And I kind of just, I just wanted to be that for one person. I just, one person in this world, I just wanted to the, for them to be able to see themselves reflected in me. Um, and that was five years ago now. That was kind of half a decade ago that I started doing all that. And it's been this weird, crazy kind of, some days I don't know what's happening, kind of roller coaster since, but still like, I probably get three or four DMs a week of people being like, I finally see that I'm not alone or I finally see someone kind of that's like me. And that kind of, that feeling never goes away. That's kind of why we do this. That's why we keep talking about it. Um, because there's not enough funding for it. So we kind of have to 
we have to kind of make do with what we have together, which probably is a really cheesy way of looking at it. But I think that's the way that we have to do it now is that, and I think especially through lockdown, I think we've all learned that we have to rely on each other more than we rely on the services, more than we rely on the things outside of our house. Um, yeah, so it's been a weird journey, but... He was the representation that you needed, but he didn't find that for himself, I guess. And um, is that fair way? Yeah. Yeah, and do you know what that is exactly it? It's kind of like, this was someone that I kind of put on a pedestal of being like, oh my God, this is what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be cool. I want to be open. I like, he was the cool kid that like strutted down corridors and everyone knew who he was. And I was like, that's who I want to be. I don't want to walk down the corridor anymore and get called a puff or get called a gay boy. I want that confidence. And it's quite ironic that that was something that I really idolized about him, but it was the one thing that he didn't feel within himself. And it was kind of, the one thing that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for him was kind of like, I don't feel like I fit in. Whereas everyone else around him was kind of like, you are the person that fits in. Like, we don't fit in with you because you're like too cool for us. Like that confidence. And I think it's, yeah, I think it's kind of a common thing in society now is that confidence was kind of a false security for the rest of us. Like we were kind of like, that is who we want to be, but it was kind of a facade. It was something that he didn't feel within himself. So he probably tried to put it on a little bit more, which worked for us, but obviously, and sadly it didn't work for him. Um, yeah. Between him taking his own life and you, and five years later, you were starting to do work around mental health. What was the first thing that you did? What triggered that first action that you took? Gosh, um, it's, it's not, it's one of those things that I look back on and laugh, but it's not like a funny thing. It's just, you know, one of those small, tiny little things that causes this ripple. Um, and yeah, about six years ago, I had started watching kind of the rise of Zoella and the rise of kind of the, back then, the cool YouTubers that were making all this money and they were like living the life that we all wanted. Um, so I started a little blog and I think it was called Everyday Dan. And then I had to change the name because one of the cool YouTubers was called Everyday Jim, and I didn't want people to think that I'd copied him. Um, and I met him a few years ago, actually, and I told him that story, and he was kind of like, I stole it from someone else. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, we used to just blog about, like, baking. I used to steal recipes from my mum's cupboard whenever I came to visit, because I lived away then, and I would bake her recipes, and I would review, like, Amazon Echoes and lush bath bombs and stuff and I was the very classic person that would put influencer in their Twitter bio um, and then one night it was kind of three in the morning and I couldn't sleep and at the time I didn't know this but kind of years down the line um, kind of that death of, the, of my first boyfriend it left me with um, complex PTSD um, and that is kind of one of the symptoms and one of the kind of signs of a flare-up is insomnia and it was kind of day, uh, night three or four of me not being able to sleep. And it was three o'clock in the morning. Um, and I used to, I lived in a flat and I used to sneak into the kitchen because it was the only place where no one could hear me. And I'd eat anything that I could find in the fridge and I'd cry. And I was kind of like, this doesn't feel right. Like up until that point, I thought, well, everyone's sad. Everyone has mental health. This doesn't feel right. Um, so I just started writing about why I was sad. Um, and I thought if I post it now at four o'clock in the morning, I've put it out there, but no one's going to see it. So it's like, kind of like I've done, I've kind of got it off my chest and I've put it out there and it's gone. 
So I did, but what I didn't realize because I was so new to the kind of blogging world was that I had my posts kind of connected to my Twitter. So anytime that I tweeted, anytime that I posted, it would come up on my Twitter. Um, and by the morning, that was it. It was like 200 retweets and it was like doing the rounds and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it became kind of the most viewed thing, the most read thing, the most shared thing that I'd done on that tiny little corner of my internet where I just really spoke about how bath bombs fizzed. And it was, it was just this weird turning point. And then from there, I think there was about six of us, about six people that reached out. And we just started a little group chat of being like, okay, who else is awake at three in the morning? Why are we sad? Let's talk about it. Um, and that's where it started. And then I stopped talking about instantly. I stopped talking about the bath bombs and I stopped checking the viewing figures and the engagement rates. And I stopped checking my AdSense. And I then turned my AdSense off because I was like, I don't want to do this for money anymore. I kind of want to do it because I found something that I can talk about. But I've also found something that's helping me as well at the same time. And then it was all because of that, that I ended up in therapy and I ended up going through kind of diagnosis process and finding out about PTSD. And um, I've seen a therapist pretty much every week for three years now. And it's all because of that one tiny little, I'm sitting on my kitchen floor with my fridge that's leaking. So my socks are now wet. I'm eating whatever I can find in the fridge and I'm crying and I've realized that this isn't it. This isn't what we should be doing. Um, and yeah, that's why I laugh because if I hadn't had sat in that puddle in front of a fridge crying at three in the morning, none of this would have happened and none of it would be where it is now. And I never ever from that moment have done it for money and I've never done it for, I hate talking about money when it comes to mental health because I just don't think the two work. I don't think it's right. Um, but I've never checked an engagement rate since. I've never checked kind of how well something's doing. I don't really care about that anymore. I just care because two people DM me and tell me that something I've shared to my Instagram stories helped them or kind of they, they relate to kind of the third paragraph of something that I've written. And that's why I do it because 10 years ago, that wasn't around for me or for my ex-boyfriend at the time. Like that wasn't around for us. So it's nice to be that person. There's a few times when you post things where you've been that person for me and there's definitely things around body positivity and confidence and because, and this has come up in every episode, because representatives in the gay community are often skinny, muscular, white, able-bodied and masculine as well. And if you're not that, it's really hard to find where you fit in sometimes. So there's a few things you've done online that have kind of really resonated with me, but you're really honest and open online and on social media. How does that been I can imagine that would make you extremely I would make you feel extremely vulnerable because I post some you know pointless crap and I know no one really cares and that's fine but when actually you do have a big follow account and whether or you like it or not you are a sort of influencer how is that how does that feel to be so vulnerable to oh gosh it's a it's such a double-edged sword because I it I kind of I laugh at myself to my friends because I'm kind of like I am the stereotypical average kid. Like, I've not got the jawline. I'm not super buff. I'm not masculine. I'm not kind of... People don't turn their heads at me when I, when I kind of they walk past me in the street. And But that's something that I'm kind of okay with. And I'm not... I never say that because I want someone to be like, I would look at you in the street. It's kind of like, not all of us can be in that top 1% of attraction. Like, it's fine. 
but no one really talks about us kind of in that middle category no one talks about us average kids and if anything kind of I find the average people quote unquote average people I find myself more attracted to them because they're I don't know I just do I just think that more people need to champion them but when it comes to posting it online it's kind of this like a I want someone to be like I feel a bit average and there's someone else that's a bit average and look we're average together and it's not a bad thing it's a really really good thing because there's probably more of us than we realize and it gives them this little self of like this little boost of confidence that kind of oh maybe I am good looking maybe I am beautiful maybe I'm not as ugly as I see myself being and that helps me to do that as well because kind of when you when you're posting yourself and you've kind of not got the most amount of clothes on you kind of know that it's going to go one of two ways and it's nice to have that kind of that kind of recognition that you are attractive and you are beautiful but then on the flip side you start posting other things or you open yourself up to people kind of being like um oh I preferred you when you were a little bit bigger I get that quite a lot I get that quite a lot in my messages or in my whenever I post something I'm kind of like that's okay that's your preference but that doesn't help me and myself like that's now making me question which way do I need to go or when I post about the mental health stuff and things it just opens you up to this whole new level of vulnerability because on one side you're helping someone and you're giving someone that little boost to get through their day or you're finding people that are like you but then on the flip side you've got people telling you that they wished you were a different size or um there's they'll wish that kind of I don't I don't know how to explain it there's just two sides to Twitter for example and one side is the beautiful side and we love the beautiful side but then the flip side is kind of the horrible side that kind of the more you open yourself up to help that positive side is the more you're opening up for that negative side and you do kind of have to take the losses with the wins um the thing I struggle with the most though in being so open is for example um the whenever I get into a relationship or whether I get into a romantic situation the natural thing to do is you stalk each other's profiles you stalk you, you do the social media stops but within 10 minutes they know more about me than they would have known in two three years had we been together organically and that's where I struggle um because I've had boyfriends in the past that, be, that have been like, oh, and then you've done this. And I'm like, how do you know I've done this? And they're like, oh, because you posted it on Twitter and it like, I saw it before we'd even started talking. And I've had quite a few viral tweets and the biggest one everyone talks about is that thread at Christmas that kind of changed everything and was the worst mistake of my life. But the amount of people that now talk to me about that thread or know me because of that thread or will kind of meet me now but will remember talking about it with their friends last Christmas and it becomes a little bit awkward. It comes a bit grating because, um, yeah, you don't get to give yourself kind of a chance to impress someone or a chance to give them your kind of true version of yourself because they're seeing this version of you already that exists somewhere. So it definitely makes you more guarded. It makes you so much more guarded. Um, and I go through waves. I don't know if anyone, a, a few people have recognised this, but I go through waves of like, for two weeks, I'll be very open and very honest. And here's like me topless. Here's me with no clothes on. Here's me very brutally talking about the fact that I'm sad today. Or um, here's me finding something funny. And I will do it where like every day for two weeks, that is it. And then I disappear for two weeks or I disappear for a week or two because it kind of like, 
it's like, oh, that was a bit exhausting. And now there's a lot of me on the internet and I feel like I need to give it a bit of a break, really, because that's too much. That is too much me. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's a double-edged sword. But you get used to it. <laughs> that's really funny because there's been at least two, two, maybe three times when I thought, have I unfollowed him? Because I just hadn't seen anything from you for a while. I kind of hadn't made the connection. I just thought, because I'm really sporadic with my Twitter use, like I will sometimes be on it Depends how kind of bored I am that day, <laughs> like how much I'll check it and use it and then it's not the Honestly, like three, how long ago was it? It was like four or five weeks ago. Um, it was like a Sunday afternoon and a boy that I was kind of, or a boy that I am involved with, he, um, he surprised me. He just turned up. He'd driven all the way from his house to my house and was like, surprise. And he stayed for a couple of days. And... So that meant for three days, I was kind of concentrating on him, but I had all this work planned in my head, but I was concentrating on him. And he left and I go on Twitter for the first time in like three or four days. And I had two DMs from people being like, is everything okay? You've not tweeted in four days. How are you feeling? Like what's going on? And it kind of had to be like, oh God, I'm really sorry, but I became one of those people that like prioritized their relationship over their friends. Like, I'm sorry. Um, and it happens all the time. Like whenever I'm with him, obviously I don't tweet as much because this is kind of like a world exclusive actually, because I just, we haven't really put it on the social media yet. We haven't really done that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of my life is tweeted out online, but I obviously am not ready to tweet about that online just yet. Um, so when I'm with him, it just goes quiet. And every time I get people being like, where is dad? Is dad okay? Has anyone spoke to dad? And I'm kind of like, I'm fine, I promise. I'm just like, I'm just spending time with someone away from Twitter, which I've not done before, which is quite strange. Um, but I just think it's quite funny, literally like, and it's always, I have like a huge following of like middle-aged women in America. And they are like all my second mum. So the second that something goes wrong, or the second, honestly, like just a word of warning to, and honestly, the second something goes down, or the second they see me like arguing with someone on Twitter, that is it. They are straight in my messages being like, don't you listen to them? Don't you, like, we'll get them. Like, and it's just great. Like, I have an army of protective mothers that like are ready at any time, but they're also the ones that are like, why have you been quiet for three days? It's like I've not been home for three days and they're angry at me. <laughs> I had a, a thing yesterday when, so like I generally think social media is for the better. Like I think actually it outweighs, there's lots of awful shit, but generally I think it's for the better. But mm -hmm. yesterday there was some guy who, um, he took a photo of someone's house with Christmas decorations up and was like, why would you do this? And it really bugged me because I was like, if that makes them fucking happy, leave them alone. And I, I, I said that and I shouldn't have jumped in. I'm normally very good at like staying away. And he just got oh, really yeah. kind of like aggressive and he was just tweeting stuff at me. And I was like, this is why I don't engage. But it felt really kind of, um, so I was like, I was on Twitter on the the very beginning, like in real early days when you've got to- 2009 I joined. Yeah, when it, it was, I was within like the first year that it was kind of, so yeah. when you talk to celebrities and they actually replied, yes. there's no one else on there. Um, and it the only thing that I do feel like Twitter has definitely changed in it's it's possible to be a bit more anonymous than you used to be, but at the same time, it can also be a, a megaphone if you get that thing, the right moment or wrong moment. Um, it, yeah, it's really 
strange because oh, I met my now ex-husband I met him on Twitter <laughs> so like Twitter has had a big impact on my life <laughs> this is the thing like um so obviously that thread so before that thread I had like 3,000 followers I was just coasting along kind of with the waves of mental health and everyone that followed me was kind of there for mental health I had a few kind of like the gay Twitters that followed me and a few of my friends but most of it was like people with mental health or the people that had followed me because of that literally i went to sleep on christmas eve after posting that thread it continued all into christmas day and by by new year's day i was on eleven thousand followers and i was like oh my god i had news reporters like in poland contacting me i had all this like it had completely changed everything and it was from that that i started getting called like a homewrecker i was getting called like everything's my fault blah 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 and it was that negative side and to begin with my best friend laura who I always talk about because she's like my Twitter warrior. Like she jumped in at every point and was fighting them back. And I was like, Laura, just like, there's kind of no arguing with these people. They don't have profile pictures. They've got about 12 numbers in their username. They've got a flag in their username. Like, let's just leave it at that. Like, let's not go there. Um, but then on the flip side, like I, the, so the, the boy that I'm involved with now, he followed me because of that thread. And I didn't know that's why he followed me because that thread to begin with, because if I'd known that to begin with, I would have been like, oh God, no. But then he really tried for about three months to slide into my DMs on Instagram. And I was like, no, no, I'm eternally single, no. Um, and then one night I just let him in and then that was it, kind of the rest of his history. But when I met his friends the other week for the first time, all of them were like, oh, so the thread, we remember the thread and I was like, I just feel like wherever I go for like the next three years, it's probably like the thread is going to follow me. And it's worse because of that. I now have a team behind me um, kind of just a, I've got like a manager who like kind of deals with my book stuff and everything like that. Um, and one of their plans for Christmas is for me to do an update on the thread. And I'm like, I don't want to go back to the thread. Just leave me alone with the thread. <laughs> just let me move on from the thread. <laughs> The thing is, though, like I, because I was following. I'm proud that I was following you before the thread. <laughs> one of the old, one of the OGs. I think it was only like you know, like a month before, but still um, <laughs> pre-thread time. Um, and but the thing about that whole thing was what you experienced. What was actually something that I think a lot of gay men, and not just gay men, but a lot of people have experienced. The amount of times, um, you know, obviously not recently. I'm, but when I was single and more free and loose, the amount of times I would be walking through the city centre and pass a guy with his wife and kids. And I'm like, you were, you were, I, I was doing stuff with you yesterday. Like how, they, what kind of got me was, I guess, the shock from a lot of heterosexual people and some LGBT people, but a lot of, it seemed mostly heterosexual people were really shocked that that happened. But then they went for you and it's like, well, actually, all that one who's married, you you weren't aware of um, him being in a relationship. And why would you automatically go for you? Because it's easier to blame the gay guy. It's kind of that. It's exactly that. It's it's always, and no matter whether you're the gay guy or the stereotypical other woman, like you are the person that gets the blame for it. And genuinely, like the one thing I get asked about that thread, the, I get two main questions about that thread. The first one is, was it definitely real? Did it really happen? And like you say, I'm always like, I don't think you understand how common it is for that to happen in kind of the LGBT world. The second question I get is, surely you knew, you had to have known. 
And I'm like, no. And the thing is, like, the kind of, the bottom line is I went to his house like three or four times. We were were together over a summer. And I went to his house three or four times. And there was no trace. There was, I mean, I'm not the kind of person, and maybe this is where I went wrong, but I'm not the kind of person to help myself to a house tour of someone's house. So maybe if I'd opened a bedroom door, I would have seen that it was a children's bedroom, but I didn't because it's not my house. Like, come on, I'm not going to be like... Hmm. You need to be nosier, like, because I totally just... <laughs> <have a> <laughs> that's why it's my fault. Like, I feel like that's where the blame lies for me because I did not check that bedroom door. Um, but there was pictures of who I've now made the connection of were his kids um, in the living room. And I was like, oh my God, who are these people? Um, because I have nieces and I thought, oh, these are your nieces. And that was the story I got, like, oh, they're my nieces, like blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like, I did question it, but I didn't question it on like, I'm suspicious, but I asked relevant questions and got relevant lies. It wasn't like, it wasn't like he was like, oh, they're my children. And I was like, okay, like, where's your wife? Or like, even if they were his kids, I probably would have still been like, okay, like, you're single, you're, you're kind of bisexual, you're homosexual, but you have children, like, people have those stories, people have that. So I probably still wouldn't have questioned it as much as I definitely should have questioned it. And I think it comes back to, there's lots of, of guys and, and, and women, I keep saying guys, but I can only be taught from a male perspective, but there's lots of men I know that are um, either gay or bisexual, but have never been able to embrace that part. Yeah. So yeah, okay, he was arguably in the wrong <laughs> because he had a wife and children, but equally because he probably had never had anyone that he could look up to, that he could that he could see as himself and that he could embrace himself. And I think we do see that a lot in the LGBT community. There's a lot of people come out later in life after they've had a you know, wife and children. Philip Schofield is a great example currently. And that comes right back to what we're talking at the beginning, that actually we're shown one way of being a man, masculine into football, and one way of being a girl. But if you don't see yourself represented any other way and you don't have that support network, then of course you would just go along with what society expects. You would go along with getting married. Yeah. It's exactly that. And like, I keep, God, I'm becoming one of those people that always talk about like their partner now, like, oh, my partner. Um, but <laughs> he's he's 30 this year and he only came out a couple of years ago. Um, so he came out roughly kind of around what age I am now, which is 27. Um, and when I think about it, like I couldn't have done the last 13 years completely in the closet or completely, like I wouldn't have liked that for myself. Um, and I get that everyone has a different journey and everyone has kind of their different story and they, you have to be ready and you have to be kind of fully accepting yourself before you can kind of give that to the world. But I, I think kind of the way that this ties into kind of the married man from Christmas is what it does is it pushes it underground. So you then become kind of, you become two people. So on the surface, he's this straight man, if you like, with two children, a wife, and he lives that that life he lives that story but then he pushes him to himself underground because then he's on grinder late at night or he's on kind of a secret tinder and he's got like maybe a second phone or like he is sneaking around kind of telling his wife that he's got this appointment that appointment when actually he's on this date or that date and it's like it it just I just think it does such irreparable damage for the the self-esteem and the mental health because yeah, I just, 
I just think it, you become comfortable living that double life. And I don't think you should ever, ever kind of become comfortable living that double life. Um, not only for the people around you, but more for yourself. Like, like I say, you have to fully accept it and you have to fully, you have to fully go through the motions of accepting your sexuality, whatever sexuality that is, whatever kind of, wherever you fall on kind of that scale, the, um, you have to understand it and accept it within yourself before you can give it to anyone else. But I think you have to do it truthfully and kind of, this is what I'm doing now. Because otherwise you end up turning around at midnight mass and seeing your two worlds collide and then it becomes worse for everyone and for yourself, which is quite sad, really. It's a book that if you've not read, you really should read. <laughs> it's called The Velvet Rage by Alan Downs. And he talks a lot about... Um, LGBT people kind of having to split their personalities and they, it, it becomes a crisis when you can't keep them split any longer. So you kind of have this public facing self on whether it's, even if you're out as gay, sometimes you can split your personality in the sense that you have to tone down your femininity or your mannerisms, but that's not really who you are. But anyway, it's really good. You should definitely read it. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, it's exactly that, though, because I don't even, like, I don't know if you notice it, but sometimes I feel like, I feel myself change depending on what circle I'm in, depending who, like, which of my friends I'm with, which of my work colleagues I'm with, which of, like, my family I'm with. You do feel a sense of, like, okay, well, this is the mask that I have to put on for this circle, and this is what I have to be for that circle. And it's something that I don't think necessarily ever stops, because I don't think, yeah, I just don't think you can ever really be your, like, true self when it comes to it, because... no you're always being someone else's true self. And absolutely, there's, when we've recently moved house, so we moved in a few weeks ago, um, it took me ages to choose a removals company because, um, and I've talked about this on another episode, um, because I was, there's something about kind of having masculine men, removal men, that's really quite scary. So I found, like, it took me ages to choose a removal company and we chose one that was recommended by an LGBT friend. It's great. But then since we've moved, we've had lots of work people in and out to do things. And I've realised that, yeah, I completely adapt my mannerisms. If I'm, there's more masculine men around, I suddenly drop my voice an octave. I stop moving my hand. It's, yeah. Honestly, the, the voice thing is just such a thing. Like when I used to, because before I went full freelance, I worked in the European Parliament um, in social media with them. And every time I would speak to Brussels or every time I would speak to an MP that was a man or something, my voice would go like four octaves lower. I would start throwing in like lad and okay mate and things like this. And I was like, who am I? I would get off the phone and the girls in the office would be like, who are you? What was that? I'll go on to my very final question. Thinking back to your 14 year old self with your suitcase, having a, a minor meltdown, what would you go back and say? Oh gosh, probably, mm, this is a good question. Um, do you know what? I would probably tell 14-year-old me that it isn't as bad as what you think it is. Because I think when anyone is coming out and when anyone is getting ready to kind of talk about who they are, I think you think it's the worst conversation that you're ever going to have in your life. And it's the worst thing that you're ever going to experience in your life. And it's something that's going to traumatise and scar you for kind of the rest of your days. And although that's true to an extent, I think you always, always will remember the way that you came out and everyone's reaction around it and stuff. I think it is definitely one of those things that 14-year-old me packed a suitcase and hyped up in his head. 
And I understand why. And that's why I'd probably give that reassurance that like, listen, it's not as bad as what you think it is. And especially now, I think we're quite lucky. Kind of my nieces, for example, I don't want them to ever have to come out. I just want them to bring home a boy or a girl and say, this is who I'm with. This is kind of, this is my partner for life. And I'd be like, cool, let's go. Like, what are we doing? Um, and yeah, so I really would want to stress that kind of easiness for the 14 year old me as well, that kind of like, it's going to be okay. It's not as bad as what you think it is. Um, and unpack the suitcase, like stop being dramatic with it. Not everything needs to be a duff duff moment. And this is definitely not a duff duff moment, Dan. That's probably what I would tell myself. <laughs> like, Unpack the suitcase. Don't have an argument about something else. Just go and do it. Because, yeah, I just think it's such a big thing for us personally. Um, as LGBTQ plus people, it is such well, it's a defining moment for all of us. But I think we therefore think it's a defining moment for everyone around us as well. Um, whereas kind of, yeah, I think my mum, for example, my mum's kind of like, oh, well, can we stop arguing about kind of what you want for tea now? Because that's where you started this. Like, come on. Um, yeah. That's a really good question because there's about a million things I would say to 14-year-old me. But when it came to like, like I would tell him to stop shaving his eyebrows for starters. I used to shave my eyebrows when I was 14. Um, <laughs> I had a monobrow and instead of like being like, okay, maybe I should pluck this, I just shaved my eyebrows. Um, yeah, I think those pictures have gone. Hopefully those pictures have gone from the internet. Um, yeah, so I would tell him not to shave his eyebrows, but I would also tell him, take it easy, take it easy on yourself. Stop beating yourself up for something that you think is going to be such a kind of impactful traumatizing moment and almost enjoy it i don't know if enjoy it's the right word but kind of you only get one coming out and if i could go back i wouldn't have had the argument i wouldn't if i knew if i knew then what i know now about kind of the way that it is and i understand why i didn't at the time um i would be a bit more kind of like calmer about it i would have been more casual about it i would have approached it with kind of kind of just a bit of an easier vibe. I wouldn't have packed a blooming suitcase. Thank you to Dan for joining me on When Did You Know? I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed making it. And please remember to keep sharing this podcast with every person you know and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. And if you're listening on iTunes, then please do leave me a review. It really helps to get us up the rankings and it's really important that we keep on sharing these conversations. And thank you to Richard Abrahams for my theme music. And don't forget to follow me at WDYKPod on Instagram and Twitter or email me at wdykpod at gmail.com with questions, comments or to volunteer yourself for an interview. Until next time.